Welcome to episode 5 of the World Teacher Podcast. This podcast is all about coming to grips with the sweeping array of social transformations happening all around us, focusing on how we can best understand, manage, and direct change in ways that allow for personal growth, community development, and make for a better world. My life for the past 15 years has been one of continual change. Plus, I study and teach about change using the amazing multi-perspectival tools and lenses that social science provides. So analyzing and adapting to change isn't just theoretical for me. It's my life. Stability is a relative rarity for me. Yet I did have the great fortune to spend five amazing years living and working in the wonderful island nation of Taiwan, which is off the coast of China, a special and all too often overlooked place which the Portuguese invaders once dubbed Ilha Formosa, or Beautiful Island, which it very much is. Living in societies highly dissimilar from your own, where the language is indecipherable and all written words seem to scream, you are illiterate. Living in societies where you are always an inescapably and extremely visible outsider and where every action you take marks you as a cultural ignoramus, that's hard. Even with privilege and a lot of support from the locals, it's hard. There can be just as many difficulties as exhilarating ones. Some places are definitely much harder to live in than others. In some places, foreigners, yes, even privileged white ones, are looked at with scorn and derision by the locals. I've been refused entry at restaurants several times because of my race, and they were not subtle about it. But never in Taiwan. The Taiwanese people may just be the world's most open and hospitable people when it comes to making foreigners feel welcome in their society. Never have I ever been anywhere on earth where even your average stranger is, nine times out of ten, super kind, friendly, polite, helpful, accommodating, generous, and caring. It's actually a fascinating social phenomenon. This isn't just a me thing or a white person thing either, by the way. Racism most definitely exists in Taiwan, and it's very easy to point out. Yet, it is nevertheless the case that foreigners do love Taiwan, and almost ubiquitously. It's been rated the best country in the world for expats many times, and I have several foreign friends who plan on staying there for life, including as teachers, tech bros, and assembly line workers. So yo, definitely check out Taiwan. Mountains, beaches, night markets, rice paddies, scooters, scuba diving, and some of the best cycling in the world. I could easily go on. I could honestly talk for like six hours straight about my love for Taiwan. Just check my Twitch stream. Just kidding, I don't have a Twitch stream yet. But anyway, amongst the many brilliant and amazing things in Taiwan I could talk about, one thing is obviously much more relevant to this show right now than any other. And that's how Taiwan leveraged its technological ingenuity and expertise to fashion what is arguably the world's best response to the COVID crisis. I know, everyone's sick of the virus, people are very over COVID or wish to be. It's a depressing topic, I get it. But this shows about hope. And for me, looking at Taiwan as an example of what humans can do when we get our act together is super hopeful, particularly when we think about not just this coronavirus, but the next one. Taiwan offers humanity hope, you'll see. To illustrate, I just want to give you one stat to set the stage before I introduce our guests. So this was my first ever 
podcast recording in my entire life. We made it uh, months ago on April 30th, 2020 to be exact. It's now mid-August. Since that time, the world has seen a significant multiplication of both infection cases and deaths in pretty much every country in the world due to COVID. On April 30th, when we recorded this session, in the 23 million person nation of Taiwan, there had been a total of six deaths. That's April 30th, six deaths. As of today, what might you guess the death toll has grown to? Well, as of today, in the more than 14 weeks since we recorded that session, the death toll in Taiwan has grown from six deaths to a grand total of seven. That's Taiwanese technological competence at work. That's a country that knows how to mitigate and manage unwanted change. That's a country that knows how to care for its people. And they did it by reflecting on experience, learning from their history, and then thinking ahead, planning for different risk scenarios, and importantly, by leveraging big data so that the health authorities could understand the problem as it evolved and adapt appropriately. My guests today are here to share the story of how Taiwan beat COVID many months ago. With us are Drs. Xi Minghui and Ryan Engen. Professor Xi is the chief data scientist and the dean of the Big Data Institute at the Taipei Medical University. A neurologist by training, Dr. Xi has extensive experience in the medical world and has served as the international director general of the Taiwanese Ministry of Health and Welfare. He definitely knows his stuff. With him is Dr. Ryan Engen. Dr. Engen is a diplomat with the United States State Department, he has previously been posted in Taipei, Guangzhou, and Brussels. He holds a PhD in international economics and has five children. Here's me with Xi Minghui and Ryan Ingen. If you could just describe your background uh, educationally and the work that you do currently. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a technology officer at AIT in, in the economics section. And I, generally speaking, I cover all things related to te Taiwan's technology sector. So semiconductors, digital economy, cybersecurity, and so forth. Uh, but since the outbreak has, has uh, broken out, uh, we, a lot of what I focused on is Taiwan's technology response uh, and U.S.-Taiwan technology cooperation aimed at resolving the pandemic. Uh, I have a Ph.D. in international economics. Uh, I Worked in uh, in during, I was a professor of international economics before joining the State Department. Uh, worked uh, worked in Brussels during the eurozone crisis and covered primarily the U.S. Tech, U.S. China technology tensions and how Taiwan gets uh, is is impacted by by all of that. Thank you so much. I'm super fascinated to ask you all about that as carefully and diplomatically as I can in the Taiwanese context. <laughs> Dr. Shi, could you please uh, similarly explain to us your educational and professional background and the areas in which you have been working and are currently working? Okay. Uh, I practice as a neurosurgeon for more than 20 years in Taiwan. And I work for uh, the health ministry in Taiwan. I held the role as the national coordinator for the development of health IT or health information technology in Taiwan. Now I am the professor at the Taipei Medical University and I teach data science and medical informatics. So that, that, that's about me. Perfect. Uh, yes, you do sound extremely well credentialed and someone who uh, would have incredible insight into this topic. So I really appreciate you taking the time we are 3 million cases globally, including 233,000 deaths. When the virus broke out, 
Taiwan was predicted by a study at John Hopkins University to be the second most affected country in the world. Instead, at the time of recording, the country of 23 million people has had a mere 429 cases and six deaths. Dr. Xi, why has Taiwan been so incredibly successful in tackling the coronavirus? And how important has been the use of big data in this fight? Uh, thank you for having me. Maybe, first of all, uh, Taiwan experienced the SARS outbreak 17 years ago. And uh, Taiwan is the third uh, uh, worst uh, hit country by SARS. And uh, we learned from that painful experience. And we successfully applied the experience we learned from the SARS outbreak in this pandemic. Uh, so uh, actually here we adopt the so-called three F principles. Later, maybe we can discuss the three F principles. But uh, in this pandemic, we do use a lot of uh, big data technology. Here, Taiwan has the, the so-called uh, universal health coverage. We adopt the public health care delivery systems, and we launch the national health insurance for more than uh, 25 years. And, and actually, we learn from a lot of the countries, and uh, especially the UK, Canada, and uh, the United States. And uh, here, the, the population of Taiwan is 23 million. We uh, actually uh, join the same uh, health insurance program. And uh, so it's a national program and uh, only central government uh, play uh, roles in the, the, the national health insurance. And here uh, we have a quite unique system. We don't have gatekeeper in our healthcare system. So uh, here Taiwanese can refer themselves to any specialist uh, if they, they want. So we have a very robust health information technology infrastructure. For example, every Taiwanese, they visit, they go to their doctor. Their doctor will upload their health data or electronic medical record to the central repository in the administration of national health insurance. So we do have very robust health data. And this time, uh, the government successfully integrate the health big data and also the data set from the customs, the immigration bureaus. So for example, we can uh, uh, check the so-called travel history in real time. And uh, there, here we use a, a acronym called TOCC. T stands for travel history. O stands for occupation because there are occupations at high risk and the first C stands for uh, contact history. And the, the second C stands for uh, cluster. That means uh, a group of people infected by the virus. So we can check uh, citizens' uh, uh, TOCC by the, uh, the, the, the health IT infrastructure. Um, thank you very much. Would you mind repeating what you had said about... Um the way that like private and public hospitals work together under a centralized system to share data and how those can be used to prioritize treatment for higher risk individuals and populations? Yes, uh, here in Taiwan, all hospitals, including public and the private hospital, they are contracted with the National Health Insurance Administration 
in Taiwan. And uh, the administration actually uh, request the providers to upload their patients' health data, including electronic medical record, within 24 hours. So we have a, a, a robust uh, uh, infrastructure to collect uh, citizens' health data. And uh, uh, every provider needs to do that because if they don't follow the rule, they won't get the reimbursement, they won't get the money. And uh, actually, the, the purpose for this system is not to fight uh, COVID-19. The system, the purpose of this system is actually to manage the uh, overutilization of medical resources. But uh, it works in, in the pandemics. And uh, uh, because it's only health data, so uh, the government in this uh, pandemic, they successfully integrate the data set from custom, from the immigration bureaus. So uh, the doctors, they can uh, check the travel history uh, uh, in real time by the, the, the network. How does having this data translate into fewer coronavirus cases and fewer deaths? How do, how do you use this to help save lives? Uh, you know that uh, here, since we don't have gatekeeper, so Taiwanese, uh, go to a doctor is affordable. So uh, they, 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 they go, Taiwanese go to their doctor frequently. And in average, the Taiwanese go to their doctor uh, 15 times per year. And uh, after they, they, they get sick, they will go to a hospital. So hospital or clinic is an, uh, uh, an area with very, very high risk. So right now, if you need to enter a hospital or enter a clinic, you need to present your uh, smart card first. And uh, there is a network. You just insert your smart card. Here in the health card, uh, in Taiwan, actually the smart card is a chip card. So you, you insert the chip card into the card reader and they can, they have a central database. They can check uh, the person's, uh, actually it's not just uh, travel history, we call that a TOCC, including uh, travel history, occupation, contact history, and also uh, any cluster uh, problems. So they can check the, the TOCC uh, in real time by this uh, infrastructure. I'm always endlessly impressed by Taiwan. I lived there for five years. I had an amazing, wonderful time in Taiwan. And I'm just very impressed by the, the speed and the effectiveness of Taiwan's response. Canada went through an experience with SARS in Toronto, where I am currently in 2003 as well. We had all sorts of cases. There were quarantined uh, people in hospitals. Yet Canada doesn't seem to have learned the same lessons as Taiwan. So one of my questions is, to what extent is the effectiveness that Taiwan has had in stopping the spread of the virus rooted in Taiwanese culture, as opposed to what was learned from SARS in 2003? Things like wearing masks. In Toronto, you don't see a single person wearing a mask outside, whereas I imagine in Taipei, every single person is. Does that not make a difference? So maybe the uh, wearing fast mask is a cultural thing. 
And if the, 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 the lesson we learn from SARS outbreak, an uh, important lesson is that wearing uh, face, face mask works. So it's important. So, uh, but it, actually there is another problem. If uh, we cannot deliver a face masks uh, efficiently, we can, if we, we cannot let every citizen uh, collect their uh, face mask, then it won't, if it's, even is important, it won't work. So there, for face mask, there's a, another uh, issue. Uh, so, uh, but if we're using the, the, the evidence as yesterday, uh, there are uh, 3.2 million uh, COVID-19 patients uh, worldwide. But in Taiwan, we have only uh, 429 cases. So I, I would say we are lucky, and it seems that government major work. And uh, so that, that actually there are a lot of uh, measures, and I mentioned uh, the, the three F principles. The first F would be first, the first principle, because this kind of a transmission happened within seconds. So you need, you need you really need real time information. If it's not quick enough, actually it won't work. So the measures and the information needs to be uh, in real time. So I, I, I think first, uh, 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 first principle is uh, the most important. So uh, do you want to- What are the other two Fs? Okay, uh, the second actually is fair. Fairness is important. Here in Taiwan, the, transmo uh, the, the information is transparent. So transparency is important. And uh, uh, how we actually, after the, 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 the outbreak, uh, government uh, 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 just bought all face masks in the manufacturers. Uh, uh, so it's mandatory. and. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, face masks, sale of ma face masks is not allowed in Taiwan in, in private market. And uh, the government is the only dealer of face masks. And uh, we, uh, we developed an uh, efficient way and uh, we let a drugstore or convenience store uh, to uh, offer this kind of a service. And uh, the Participation from private sectors is also important. Many, uh, we call that uh, netizen, they just create websites to reveal the information about the stock of face masks in different drug stores and uh, convenience stores. And uh, they, 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 they don't get any benefit. They, cre they just create the website uh, for public good. So you can check the drugstore or convenience store nearby where they still have the stock of face masks. So that's, that's fair, that's the second F. And the third F is fun. We believe that we can fight misinformation with uh, humor. So we say humor over rumor. So I, I have several examples. Great. Oh, but maybe I should stop here. No, no, I want to hear the examples. <laughs> okay. 
about the, 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 the humor over rumor. Uh, since there is a, a rumor about that there will be shortage of uh, tissue and uh, the toilet paper. So the shelves in supermarkets uh, is all, are all empty. The, 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 the tissue or toilet papers uh, shelves are empty. And so the next day, the prime minister uh, just uh, show a, a photo with his uh, buttock only in that photograph. And he said, uh, everyone has only a pair of buttocks. Why we need so many uh, tissue? So <laughs> I, I, I believe it's kind of uh, a human. <laughs> so now you can buy a tissue or toilet paper quite easily in Taiwan. I think it's amazing that people are having a good time despite mm -hmm. this. I guess it might help to be in a situation where you're in one of the most protected situations in the world. Um, Dr. Engen, how would you describe the current state of the lockdown in Taiwan? And how severe do you expect the impact to be on Taiwan's economy compared to that of countries like the U.S. that are arguably still struggling very much more with how to respond to the crisis? Uh, sure. So, I mean, Taiwan's response to COVID-19, frankly, has been more successful than any in the world, according to nearly all available metrics. Uh, you know, again, like, like the professor mentioned, despite this proximity to China, regular cross-strait flows of travelers and commerce, um, Taiwan has, has, has thus far succeeded in controlling the spread of the, of the virus. Um, and from our perspective, international media and countries around the world are starting to take notice of Taiwan's success uh, and have expressed you know, interest in, in, in learning more you know, and why it is that they've, they've been so successful. And as a, result of their, uh, as a result of their success, the overall economic impact on them, uh, frankly, is going to be you know, less than pretty much anybody. Uh, if, the, if the outbreak is kept under control, uh, which it has been, despite the fact that it shouldn't be by for all ostensible purposes, uh, it's enabled the economy to remain open, uh, enabled people to to do what they need to do to go to work. Now, of course, they're you know social distancing. Restaurants are of course taking a hit, um, but essentially, there's been you know very little. Uh, economic impact compared to the rest of the world. Now, most of the economic impact that Taiwan is, is suffering from this is, is not so much due to slowdown in economic activity here in Taiwan itself, but rather they're an export-driven economy. And so as global demand collapses, uh, their, their exports become less. And so the hit to the economy comes from the fact that the rest of the world uh, has not been following the, the wise example of Taiwan. Uh, if people had been responding uh, the way Taiwan had from the beginning, their economic, the economic impacts uh, on those economies would, would be less. That must be really frustrating for Taiwanese business people to be in a country where everybody's acting as responsibly as you can and then still being negatively impacted because you're dependent on the rest of the world to buy your things. I mean, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the the the, the you you talked about culture before, and, and from from my perspective as a foreigner living in Taiwan, I don't sense that frustration at all. In fact, the cultural reaction in Taiwan is the opposite. It's 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 how can we help? They see the rest of the world struggling uh, and seeing how you know, like you know, in terms of you know, protective equipment or. Um, 
you know, testing or whatever innovations that, that the rest of the world needs. And Taiwan's first reaction is not is to is, is to essentially say, how could we help? In fact, they, they even have a, a, a website and kind of you could almost say this is their national motto. Taiwan can help. Uh, and so the website is Taiwan can help dot us. So Taiwan can help us. And that's really their message to the world. And they and and from from our perspective, uh, that's that's exactly what they're doing. And so the Taiwan model uh, is really something that we think the rest of the world should be learning from uh, and has a lot to learn from. Absolutely beautiful. Well, uh, I think it's just, yeah, it's very, very much a Taiwanese thing to respond in that kind of way. How would you say it's, uh, so you mentioned that like, basically people are still going to work. Life is not that unusual here. Things are pretty shut down. So can you just describe the normal state of affairs in Taiwan? Like you said, restaurants have been impacted. Are some still open? Are they all closed? What kind of uh, businesses uh, have not been able to remain open and what kinds have been? So Taiwan in many ways is is kind of a three weeks to a month ahead of the rest of the world. So when you look at a lot of the, the graphs that you see online, like it says number of days since uh, you know they hit 25 infections or whatever, and then and that's how like the timeline tracks. Uh, and so because uh, you know Taiwan is so close to China, uh, you know where the virus started, that you know they experienced a lot of this stuff earlier than the rest of the world. Um, but what the the professor was talking about. Um, uh, you know, fast reaction that Taiwan has to things. So when the I can't remember the the the, the guy's name, but the the whistleblower in Wuhan, uh, Doctor Wen Liang or Liao or something. I can't remember his name. I'm sorry about that. Um, he uh, when he blew the whistle saying that there's a problem here. Um, it was uh, picked up on Taiwan's social media, uh, and it, Taiwan's government. Uh, or Taiwan civil society, who is, um, you know, incredibly innovative. There, we could talk more later about digital minister Audrey Tang, who's just, a, you know, my my view, she's a time traveler from the future who's come back uh, to the present to tell us what we all need to do. Um, but it was picked up. So civil society picked this up on Taiwan social media and then shared it with the government. And the government immediately uh, went into action. So they started to, uh, you know, start screening at the airports, people's arrivals, um, uh, you know, and, and people who you know, showed signs of infection were put into quarantine. I mean, they immediately sprang into action on like January 1st. Uh, and so as a result, they were on top of things from the very beginning. Uh, and so in the beginning, people were, were, were scared because, you know, people remembered what happened with SARS and, and just people get it that this is something that that's quite serious and so there was a general like fear and panic uh, well not panic but like you know the like the toilet paper and and, and things like that um and so people started, you know, going out less. Uh, but then over time, once uh, everything that what everybody expected was going to happen, like a big wave of cases, didn't materialize, and the Taiwan uh, government demonstrated that they're completely on top of, of of the response, then the confidence in the population grew, and so people were able to, you know, remain, you know, going to work going to stores and so forth. Now, of course, everyone's wearing face masks, uh, restaurants, you know, crowded areas, you know, food courts, they might not be, uh, um, you know, as, as crowded as they would, it would normally be. But by and large, life is, life here is functioning, you know, essentially as normal. 
there's very little, uh, and not because people are indifferent to the risk. It's because people are aware of the risk and aware that they have, uh, you know, a government that's taking care of them and a population who's responding to uh, uh, the issues with their own own behavior. So it makes a difference how governments respond, and it's not the case that it's just chemtrails in the air and all this is just a lie. Uh, yeah, it's clearly clearly not not that. I mean, you know, for example, the um, this is something I think it's, it's difficult for a lot of people to to understand um, is you know the averted catastrophe, right? They say, oh, well, you know, you said there's going to be a, a million deaths and there's only been you know X number, uh, so you were exaggerating. Well, no, uh, we did what was necessary to avert those deaths from happening in the first place, and so Taiwan should have been, by all objective purposes, one of the most hit uh, uh, areas in the world, uh, yet has hardly been impacted at all. So this is a story of catastrophe averted. It's an amazing story, and it's one that I think should raise Taiwan's clout in the world. And as you know, Taiwan has been marginalized for decades because of U.S. and Chinese policy. Do you think that it's possible uh, that Taiwan's clout might increase in the world in terms of its inclusion with intergovernmental bodies like the UN and the, and the WHO, or will things continue on as they are? Uh, well, so first of all, I would disagree with the way you framed the question that Taiwan's isolated as a result of of of, Taiwan, of China and U.S. policy. Uh, I would actually say no. It's it's it's. Very clearly, it's China who is doing everything they can to isolate Taiwan in every way they can uh, and to close off any and all doors to Taiwan's rightful uh, participation within the international community. And, and you know, AIT and, and our job as, as like the U.S. government, we, we, we say essentially every time China closes a door on Taiwan somewhere, our job is to open a door uh, for Taiwan somewhere else uh, because Taiwan has a very important story. And, and valuable experience that they need to share with the world, and they are being unfairly excluded uh, by uh, in international bodies and, and and from participating in global problem solving simply due to Chinese pol Chinese politics uh, and the way in which they they need to view things. Whatever you think about Taiwan's status in terms of its uh, you know its its, its its legal status uh, diplomatically or whatever in the world does not change the fact that Taiwan wants to contribute to global problem solving. And when it comes to public health, uh, there, there's, there's, I mean, the statistics show there's literally no one better on earth. Uh, so to exclude them from international problem solving for purely political purposes costs lives. People who otherwise would be, um, you know, saved uh, are dead because of this sort of exclusion. And a good example of this is Taiwan alerted uh, the World Health Organization very early on uh, about human to human transition, uh, transmission of the virus when China was still trying to cover up uh, the fact that this was happening. Taiwan alerted the WHO that this was happening, but due to the political issues uh, surrounding it and, and, and basically, um, you know, China's 
a blackmailing and bullying of any other uh, international partners to engage with Taiwan prevented that sort of information from coming out. And so when we talk about catastrophe averted, had the world listened to Taiwan, it's quite possible the world could have averted uh, the catastrophe that it's facing right now, because we all would have started a lot earlier. But instead, uh, due to the sort of political pressure we did, and so all of the consequences that flowed from not responding uh, earlier, each country, of course, has its own issues. But as a world, uh, had we followed Taiwan's example and listened to the warnings that Taiwan was given and had that not been smothered by, by Chinese political interference, uh, there could have been catastrophe averted at a global scale. That was a great rejoinder to my question. <laughs> Very well said. Could you um, please tell me a little bit about uh, U.S.-Taiwanese cooperation in this context and how that has changed? Sure. Um, so the um, you know in in general, what we're like overall, what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, highlight uh, the Taiwan model. Uh, globally, like explaining to the world that that you know, look what's happening here. Because even you see the media; it's it's like an article's written. They talk about Korea, they talk about Singapore, and, and you know, New Zealand, and these places that have ever you know have responded well. But Taiwan keeps getting sometimes sometimes it's mentioned, but most of the time it's simply forgotten. And that's because again, I think because China has has succeed largely succeeded in smothering Taiwan's voice uh, in the world. And so we are trying to shout from the rooftops that. Taiwan is the actually the model that the rest of the world uh, needs to follow. We are here on the ground. We see what's happening here compared to the rest of the world, uh, and and there's a lot that that can be listened. So what are we doing specifically? So we organized uh, last week uh, Taiwan's vice president, who is a Johns Hopkins alum uh, and also former uh, um, minister of, of, of health, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to deliver an address to Johns Hopkins University uh, about the Taiwan model and what Taiwan is doing so that the you know Johns Hopkins, who's obviously very important in this, this story, uh, is able to, to benefit from that experience. Uh, we've also organized two different international uh, conferences. Uh, virtually, of course. Uh, uh, so it's through a program called the Global Cooperation and Training Framework. So this is essentially the every time China closes one door, we open a door somewhere else. Um, and so we held a, vid a virtual conference uh, where Taiwan experts could share their uh, – two, two of these conferences, in fact, where Taiwan experts can share their experiences with the rest of the world. Uh, and so we did one on combating medical disinformation, so this whole you know uh, humor over rumor uh, and also using AI and big data to, to identify uh, you know, where uh, you know, these you – know, uh, fake information or trolls or sock puppets, sock, po sock puppets, uh, and all the rest are, are are coming from. So that was one aspect: a conference on combating digital or combating medical disinformation. And then the second was just on sharing simply Taiwan's uh, response, like so similar to the conversation we're having here. Uh, but these these conferences are being held with public health authorities uh, or you know like relevant government officials from around the world so that we can share Taiwan's experiences and lessons learned with the rest of the world. So that's what we're trying to do. 
That sounds fantastic. It clearly makes a difference. It clearly matters what countries do. And it makes all the sense in the world to be emulating the, one of the countries that has had the best response by far. Now, if debates I, are – just add – Yeah, one, jump in. One other thing on that. Um, so the um, uh, it's not just Taiwan's uh, – you know, government that has done a good job. Uh, it's also Taiwan's civil society. Uh, and that is in large part, uh, you know, thanks to, I mean, I guess it's a government civil society cooperation, but it's in large part thanks to digital minister Audrey Tang. Um, so she is a former hacker uh, turned minister um, who, uh, you know, is, is, is probably one of the most brilliant people uh, on earth uh, in terms of, of, of being able to think about things. And um, what, what, uh, she, one of her main areas of focus is trying to harvest uh, collective wisdom, the collective intelligence of a population. So she's developed a variety of online digital tools um, for uh, um Basically, like creating a mass digital dialogue with with a population to solicit their input and use the wisdom of the crowd uh, to discover the best ideas, and then people discuss back and forth, and then the best ideas uh, that the society has rise to the top. So it's not just simply government officials like who are really smart uh, who come up with ideas, but how can we harness the population to do it? And so, uh, so she, there's a digital dialogue to come up with ideas of how to respond. And then uh, she's organizing a hackathon, uh, which is open to the rest of the world. So you can, the, your, your listeners or whatever can go online to cohack.tw uh, and actually participate in this hackathon uh, to devise and develop solutions to, you know, community health resource management, protecting vulnerable populations, uh, predicting outbreaks, uh, communicating risk in a democracy democracy and so forth. And then Taiwan's government uh, and civil society are going to make these innovations open source, freely available, like their gift to the world uh, of, you know, here's tools that we've developed to respond to the crisis. Uh, and, and we share them with the world freely so that you can solve your problems. I mean, who does that? I don't know any, I don't know anyone in the world uh, who can combine um, Civil society, government, uh, the private sector uh, with a selfless uh, good heart for contributing to global problem solving. It's really, truly an amazing thing. It's really beautiful to see that kind of strategic, very coordinated collaboration happen on so many different levels to literally save lives. And I agree. I think the world needs to be watching Taiwan. I agree. So where do we go from here? What are your two perspectives on how countries like the United States, who are in the midst of a very severe strike by this virus, transition back to normal? How do we get back to work? How do we move into a relatively normal world? Does it mean waiting for the vaccine for a year and a half? Does it mean hoping we get herd immunity um, what, what do you think the impacts will be of going back to work too early? I'll, I'll let the, the, the medical expert respond to that. <laughs> uh, we, we can learn from the history, but uh, I, I believe uh, the, 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 we, we cannot just, uh, the history won't repeat itself, but uh, there, everybody knows that there is the so-called Spanish flu in the uh, uh, 
the first decade of the 19th century. So uh, we need a, a good uh, model also for uh, reopening. And uh, it's also about the health risk. And uh, actually, we don't really know what will happen. But uh, I believe uh, we can always find uh, a way to take all this. Maybe I'm too optimistic. But uh, since I'm a professor of uh, data science, so I, I believe uh, the data-driven policy and the data-driven uh, model is important for most uh, lockdown and uh, for the uh, open too. We need a uh, good quality data for our policy. So you would advocate for other countries to improve their data collection and mobilization efforts as a very first step. Yes, and then we should uh, also share uh, the data is important. And uh, I, I would like to echo uh, Ryan's opinion. And uh, actually, uh, in, in last year, not this year, in, in last year, December, uh, the PRC's whistleblower, Dr. Li Yunliang, uh, posted his uh, warning message on the social media in China. And actually, Taiwanese, uh, some Taiwanese read that message and uh, reported it to the government. And I think there is a very important thing is that actually we still use different characters. In China, they use the so-called simplified Chinese. But most of the Taiwanese can read simplified uh, Chinese. So maybe the world should regard Taiwan as uh, the best front line to collect information. Uh, from mainland China. And since the, 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 the attitude and the policy is transparent, we will get, uh, we will share every information and every data from, uh, from, from, from China with other parts of the world. So I think uh, it's important. Absolutely. Dr. Ryan, what would you say about how we transitioned back? And in particular, how would you weigh the negative impacts of a prolonged um, halting? of normal economic economic activity versus the negative impacts to people's human lives to health and to healthcare systems right so these are these are uh you know deeply moral and ethical questions and there are no there are no clear um answers of how to approach that and i think these are conversations that only democracies uh, can properly have uh, in terms of being able to listen to what the population has to say and the different uh, moral and ethical considerations involved uh, to be able to come up with a solution and a response that reflects and respects uh, all of the different ethical value systems and, and priorities of, of different populations and how they're impacted. Obviously, if you are an authoritarian government, it's very easy to just simply impose one value system uh, and ensure that that's the one that's enforced, and that may produce certain results um, which might uh, you know, look better by certain metrics, uh, but not necessarily uh, the, the optimal response from a human level. And so I think that it, it, all of that needs to be taken into account. Uh, for me, uh, personally, so this is not U.S. government official position uh, because we don't have an official position because we believe in, in democracy uh, needs to come up with these answers, and we, we have we have confidence in decentralized systems to you know markets and decentralized government and so forth to come up with. Um, 
solutions that, that that respond to these questions. But for me, for me personally, um, yeah, I think there are legitimate issues that, of how to balance the economic uh, implications uh, with the uh, with the public health considerations. And when I say economic, I don't mean how much money people make. I mean poverty kills. Uh, poverty, uh, lack of access to uh, you know to healthcare, to jobs, to to, uh, to being able to feed your families and so forth. This promises to be uh, you know potentially just as deadly uh, as as the public health considerations. And so I think the ethical moral perspective has to be to minimize the harm, uh, however defined, uh, and that includes also uh, you know the 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 harmful impacts of uh, poverty or a lack of economic opportunity. Uh, you know, savings are being wiped out, cut families who, you know, who are, are supporting their kids in college, their business is wiped out. And so the impacts on the kid's college, the business goes under, it has to fire its workers. The workers then consume less, they consume less than someone else loses their job. Uh, you know, like it spirals, uh, you know, and echoes across the economy. And that has impacts on on everyone and everything, um, and so th I do think that these hap these 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 balances have to be struck, uh, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and I I don't think any government uh, can play God uh, and and say you know like that's the answer. Uh, I think this is something that collectively humanity uh, needs to find its way towards an answer that works for us. And that's why uh, democratic participation, civil society, uh, uh, you know, in these conversations is really important. I would most certainly agree. I, I think, however, it's also extremely interesting that we've seen so much in almost, at least in my lifetime, an unprecedented degree of government intervention to keep con economies going at this time. And it's not just banks, like in 2008, average people are seeing social supports being put in place, like mortgage and rent relief, income support, student loan relief, policies that establish a so social safety net. Now, for those who argue that those social safety nets should always be in place and it shouldn't take a crisis like the one we're in in order to have that. Do you think that their arguments have more weight in these in this kind of situation? Could one use this as an argument for a program like a universal basic income, for instance, in order to help prevent economic shocks from things like viruses um, or simply just out of fairness? Uh, so again, I'll, I'll speak in my in my personal capacity, not as uh, you know representative of the of, of the U.S. government here. Um, so you know, I, I think again, let's let's look at let's look at Taiwan as as the example. Uh, due to their public health system, uh, which you know ensures that everybody is taken care of. Um, from you know throughout their entire lives, it creates a different sort of incentives that are aimed at prevention of health issues. Uh, so the professor was talking about how you know making the masks available. Uh, you know the, the implication of that is if the Taiwan government, if Taiwan's government doesn't make the mask available in a fair way, uh, then vulnerable populations will get sick at higher rates, or, or not even just the mass, but even access to healthcare. Vulnerable populations will get sick at higher rates. And then that has uh, echo on impacts on the rest of society. And so public health is a public good. Uh, and so therefore, you know, these sorts of things need to be, uh, when you take, when you have these sorts of guarantees, 
that are in place at the level of the society, then that everybody is the incentives are aligned for everybody to work towards prevention as opposed to avoidance uh, of cost or maintenance of cost. Uh, so that's the first point. The second on for like universal basic income and so forth, um, you know, the the um, it was it's. There was a there's some economists um, Gabriel Saez and I can't remember the the co-author of the article, uh, but they put out very early on uh, an article saying that the only real way to address the economic implications or the the most effective way of addressing the economic implications of this crisis is through payroll guarantees provided by the government, uh, because that enables that both bails out the companies who have to make payroll. And it bails out the workers uh, who would otherwise be fired uh, if they you know, they lose their job uh, if um, if they're not bailed out. And so the same set of money is then able to bail out both the workers and uh, and the companies. And that I think is is exactly correct. Now the ability to implement on that is, is sometimes difficult, but that's as, as a solution, it's good. Now in terms of of universal basic income itself, um, you know, and how that's provided, that's I mean that's a that's the the case can certainly be made as to why um, that puts a floor underneath uh, human experience uh, to ensure that. Um, they're the most vulnerable are going to be protected. Uh, my concern uh, is simply that it becomes – it replaces then every other thing. Like you say, oh, well, we did universal basic income, so now we don't have to do anything else and let's leave the rest to the market. Uh, but if the market uh, is – uh, broken, or there are market failures where you know certain en certain entities have greater market power. The market won't arrive at an optimal solution, and so it's not enough to just do universal basic income, but its objective of putting a floor underneath human ex uh, to ensure a, a minimum safety net, uh, of course, is a good idea. And, and Taiwan, again, is experimenting with exactly this. So there's there's a discussion going on in terms of how to structure their bailout, uh, where they're talking about doing a, basically a variant of universal basic income, uh, you know, whether it's cash or coupons or whatever. I mean, this is something that they're still discussing, um, but they're they're recognizing that issue, and and that's with Taiwan, you know, relatively speaking, being uh, less impacted than the rest of the world. Last question. Dr. Shi, how do we prevent this from happening again? Uh, I, I believe uh, this will happen again because the, the fight between the, the, the virus, bacteria between human and this, all these uh, diseases won't stop. So we, we, we should not hope that this won't happen again. But we should learn from this and prepare for next pandemic. So we need to assume that pandemics are with us as just part of our existential fate as humans. And it's about how we get ready and respond for the next maybe bigger one. Yes, this kind of a battle will never end. Any last comments or thoughts that you guys have that you'd like to share? Uh, Maybe the last thing I want to share is that uh, now here in Taiwan, we use the slogan, Taiwan can help. Taiwan is helping. It's not just a slogan. Now, since the, the, uh, the case number is not so many, 
and we still let uh, uh, citizens collect uh, their uh, uh, face masks. And now, actually, since we have enough face masks, uh, the citizen, the Taiwanese, can donate their face masks to other countries. Uh, just go to the website and uh, click uh, checkbox, and then they, they can donate. If that is not necessary for them, they can donate their mask to uh, people in other countries that, that who need uh, face masks. So I, I would say uh, Taiwan Taiwanese can help. Taiwanese is helping, and it is in the blood of Taiwanese. Well, it's it's in the blood of Canadians to say thank you. And I really do want to thank you on behalf of myself and I'll just speak on behalf of all Canadians. Why not? We're getting sent 500,000 masks from Taiwan in this week. Um, whether we wear them is a different question, but uh, we really appreciate the support. What were you going to say, Ryan? <clears throat> yeah, I was just going to add as, as like for my final uh, thoughts or words, I would actually have the exact same final thought. Taiwan can help. Um, the, the reality is, is that they want to help. They have the knowledge and the wisdom uh, and the experience necessary to help. They have the, in, the, the good heart and the intention to help. They have the technology uh, and the ability to innovate new technologies. Uh, and, and, and they very much uh, do want to help. And I think our job uh, as the rest of the world, you know, the United States government or you know Canada or anywhere in in the democratic world, is we have to recognize what's actually happening here. What is preventing and standing in the way of Taiwan helping? And is this the right time to let politics stand in the way of uh, global problem solving and pandemic response? And for me, the answer is an obvious no. Um, and so I'm not trying. The issue here is not to identify, uh, you know. It's not a blame game. That's not the issue. You have to diagnose the problem before you can accurately develop a solution. And the problem here is Taiwan's voice uh, is being, uh, and not just Taiwan's voice, Taiwan's ability to help is being stifled. Uh, and that's an injustice to the world. Uh, and that is, uh, that is, and I think we need to call a spade a spade and we need to say where that's coming from and why that's happening and say, you know, regardless of what you think about the political status uh, of Taiwan, uh, you know, it has absolutely nothing to do with these sorts of uh, public health questions. Uh, and so, you know, we need to, we need to recognize who is a force for good and who is standing in the way. Uh, and that's, that's, Again, I'm not trying to blame to, to do a blame game here, but that's the truth of it, uh, and that I think the world needs to know. Uh, and 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 I hope uh, you know collectively the world puts pressure, saying this is this is not okay. It's not okay uh, in a situation like this to stand in the way of someone trying to help. Taiwan can help, but we gotta open our ears and listen, open our hearts and accept. Yep. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Um, fascinating. I really appreciate it. You guys are brilliant speakers. I very, very lucky. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for, for for hosting us. All right. Well, I'll leave you there, gentlemen. Thank you so much, and I'll be in touch. Thank you, and, and thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. 
So that was episode number five of the World Teacher Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. It's personally very interesting for me to listen and think back to when I recorded this conversation a few months ago. I was very green, to say the least. Ryan actually had to interrupt the conversation after a few minutes because he noticed I'd forgotten to press the record button. Oops. Anyway, that's fine. Stuff happens. Making mistakes and reflecting on experience are essential parts of any effective educational process. Taiwan shows that. Follow science, not stupidity. Follow courageous humans, not conspiracy theorists. And please follow the World Teacher Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'd super appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to please also write a review on the latter. It would really help a lot. Thanks for listening.